Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Okay, on today's episode, we have a really good one for you. One of my very good longtime friends, Dr. Bill Jones, sat down with me for an interview about wilderness survival and uh, just preparedness in general. Bill was a, uh, is a former Navy SEAL, and he is also an emergency medicine doctor and a wilderness ultrasound fellow. And he is a wealth of knowledge, as you can imagine, on medical issues as well as mental preparedness and basically just everything that has to do with facing hard things, as you can imagine a SEAL slash doctor would be. Anyway, I really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I think you're going to find it interesting. If you like this podcast, I'd ask that you please give us a five-star review, share it, comment, give us all the plaudits you can, because that really helps the algorithm. And as you know, in this world, that's what it's all about to get our message out there. So please, again, if you like the Short Gun Sportsman, give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Thank you so much, and listen in as I discuss wilderness survival and emergencies in the woods with Dr. Bill Jones. Dr. Bill Jones, thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. So obviously your experience has taking you all over the world and into some ad- adventures as well as learning a lot about the human body and emergency situations. So I was interested to talk to you today about some some preparedness for the, in the field that hunters can undertake as well as maybe what to do in some of the more common emergency situations. So let's just start out with uh, kind of what you're what you do these days. Uh, so today I'm an emergency medicine physician. And I am a wilderness medicine fellow. So I study for emergency medicine in the austere environment. Oh, okay. So hikers in trouble. Yes. Okay. Well, then what, so what is the kind of prevalence do you think of underpreparedness? Like people, people who go into the backcountry, do you think that most of them are usually prepared and know what they're getting themselves into? Or do you think that most people go unprepared or is it evenly mixed? I would have to say it's probably evenly mixed. A lot of people that have a lot of experience are usually prepared, but there are always stories about people that are, that have a ton of experience and still have bad stuff happen because they were Mm. unprepared. Mm. But with how popular outdoor activities has gotten, especially since COVID lockdown, Mm -hmm. I think the amount of people going out that have less experience and are completely and utterly unprepared has really gone up. So there's probably two ends of the spectrum. And one is that you can be completely unprepared. Obviously, that's bad. But you can be so prepared and so experienced that you get complacent. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that in the terms of the COVID lockdown stuff. Okay, so if you're going out hunting in a camping back of the back back country type situation like you said an austere environment 
what are some of the things that you're going to make sure that you know before you go? And we'll get to the things that you make sure you take later. But what are the things that you make sure you need to know? What knowledge do you need to have or skills? So I think the biggest thing would be to know, just know the area that you're going into. Um, where are access points? Where's ways to get out? Are there any uh, ranger stations in in the vicinity? Uh, any nearby towns? Anything like that that could potentially be of help? What kind of resources are available in that area? So if you do have an emergency, can somebody come and get you? Mm. And who would that be? And who? What are those likely response organizations like? park rangers or uh park rangers have some there's a lot of ems groups that Mm. that will do that as well um and you would have to just do a little bit of research for the area that you're at and you can typically find it i was watching something about avalanche beacons you know like when people get buried with an avalanche they have that beacon that people can home in on and find them is there anything like that for normal just like a, a beacon that some or some means for signaling electronically for someone to come find you. Yes, there is. Garmin makes one. It's uh-huh. called, I believe, it's called InReach, mm. and it's basically a GPS device that right. sends a like SOS signal out. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and that that's on the you know gearless like top things right. to have. Yeah. Uh, there's a few other uh, companies that make something very similar, but yeah, the. Like you're talking about the avalanche beacon, mm-hmm. like that's only good for a couple hundred meters right. at yeah. most. It's yeah. not it's not designed for going out and then having somebody find you miles mm-hmm. miles down the road. Um, that's where the the GPS would be. Okay, better. gotcha, understood. And as far as you know, there's a level of woodcraft, you know, the eagle scout eagle scout type of knowledge that some some of it. You know, as fun, like starting a fire without, with as few implements as possible, which every man and boy loves to try and do. But, you know, these days it's not likely that you're going to have to start a fire by rubbing two sticks together. So basically my question is, what are some of the most important woodcraft knowledge things that you should figure out or learn before you head into those? I mean, it depends, obviously, like snowy area, forested area, what time of year it is and all that stuff. But in general, what do you think? I think the most important things are to be able to craft some sort of shelter mm-hmm. in whatever type of environment you're in, whether that be snow or not snow, mm-hmm. and then how to collect and clean water so mm-hmm. that you can have drinking water. Have you used those or seen those, like the little UV stir sticks that they put in water? Is that effective? Yeah, those are very effective. Okay, so it has to be completely clear water for it to oh, for it to work. Okay, so if it's if it's murky water, mm-hmm. uh, the UV rays don't get everywhere. Understood. And so you would have to strain it like through a bandana or something like oh, that okay. first. Oh, that's a top tip. Okay, so then just for just for fun, because you're a doctor, what are some of the things that you can contract by drinking bad water? Various, many, many <laughs> bacteria uh-huh. and. Uh, like uh, worms. Oh yeah, yeah, parasites. Thank you. That's yeah, the yeah, word. Yeah. Parasites. I'm doctor too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, what is the likelihood that that's a fatal? So, if you are stuck somewhere mm-hmm. and you contract one of these, and it could cause such profound vomiting and diarrhea uh, that you would become severely dehydrated. Yeah. 
All right. So there's PSA. Clean your water, folks. Okay. So shelter and water. Great. Okay. So now when you're now, let's talk about kit. What are some of the things that you're going to make sure that you have from a preparedness standpoint? Not necessarily like obviously we know you're going to bring your gun. You're going to bring your tent. So preparedness, I think, uh, like we already mentioned, one of the top things is a GPS device that can send out a signal uh, to enact a rescue if you need it, uh, such as the, the garment in reach. Then always have a little bit of extra food, a little bit of extra water, super important. Uh, have a way to be able to clean water and then have uh, extra warm clothes specifically. Mm-hmm. If you're going somewhere uh, where, where it's going to be cold at night, Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it's a day trip, like you're going out for a day hike and mm-hmm. you're supposed to come back, yeah. but something, and it gets cold at night, but it's fine during the day yeah. and you get stuck out and you have to spend the night out there, have something to where you won't freeze to death. If that, gotcha. if that happens. That's interesting. That's a good point about, cause I've heard plenty of stories of people getting in trouble because they were perfectly prepared for the thing that they thought they were going to be doing. Like a day trip. Yes. But then they get stranded and they're not prepared for the whatever happens when they were there longer than they thought they were. Yes. Be. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to look at not only mm-hmm. that day, what's the night like, and then what's the incoming weather for the next couple days. Right. Um, and then as far as like medical supplies, I think the most important thing that you would carry would be a tourniquet. Okay. So um, in your first aid kit, tourniquet, obviously, what are some other items that you want? You know... If we're, if we're backpacking, we want to keep it light, so we're not going to bring the whole kitchen sink, but what are the top items that you always want to have? That the, that the layman, you know, not... Yeah. Yeah. For, for med kit, mm-hmm. uh, I would have uh, tweezers, because mm-hmm. super uncomfortable to have a thorn. <laughs> True. Uh, and it's something that's pretty light and, and is very effective. Uh-huh. Um, I would have a bandage of some sort. Right. Like a cloth bandage? Uh, like an ace type like thing? A, like an ace or the uh, um, Coban, like the self-adhesive oh, right, wraps. Right. Like after you get your blood drawn type deal? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah those are those are pretty useful because they could they could pro- provide a little more pressure than, than an ace uh, right, bandage typically can. Yeah. And uh, some sort of gauze to, mm. to stop the bleeding and then okay. Band-Aids and, and some sort of antiseptic like alcohol wipes. That'll that'll take care of most things mm-hmm. that that you're going to run into in a field right. experience like that that you can do yourself. How important is it? I mean, I know it's not essential, but how do you recommend going with more than one person? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so you got your field kit and you're in the woods. What are some of the that you know of? What are some of the most common injuries and ways that people get injured? when they are hiking, camping, hunting in these situations? Most common uh, is like trauma, like tripping and falling uh-huh. and then having some, some sort of injury from that. Broken bone, scratches, scrapes, a head injury. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those are the most common. When you're, when you're hunting and you involve firearms, there's always the risk of right. a gunshot wound happening. Sure. And so being able to, to at least manage some of that would be would be essential. Yeah. And actually this is, uh, I, I was telling you this story yesterday. We have a, an HHI member who, who was a, po- a couple podcasts ago who was shot when he was in the woods. Fortunately, he's also a doctor, but it was one of those things. He was in a place, pub- I believe it was public land. 
he didn't hear the shot. He just felt, he said it felt like a rip burning and it was in his bicep. And so the gunshot wound, if you're on public land, it could be just such a fluke that you, not even you are responsible for, you know, it's super rare, obviously, but okay. So then let's say you're, you're walking on a trail, uh, shale or whatever slips out from under you. You take a tumble down the hill and you land and you're still conscious and you could tell you're hurt, what are the first things you need to do to self-assess the extent of your injuries? I think just look around mm-hmm. and look at your, like physically look at your body, mm-hmm. especially in the moment of adrenaline, you might not realize that you have some injury. Gotcha. And so actually like feeling around and looking and making sure that you don't have like a compound fracture with the bone sticking out. Right. Yeah. I've heard, I've thank God never experienced it, but I've heard people who describe horrific injuries as it didn't even hurt. And then I look down. And so with your, is it, is it true that with the adrenaline running through your body, that things like excessive bleeding can happen more quickly than you realize that they're happening and get out of control? Yeah. 100%. Okay. Um, and especially like you said, cuts, mm-hmm. whereas if you just look, you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have kids, so how many times are they fine until they look down yeah. and they see that, that there's blood and then they start freaking out and right. screaming? That's true. That's a good point. Okay, so, and I, the, most of the stories that I've heard are similar. Fell down a ravine or whatever, uh, broke an ankle or, or wrist or something like that. So, obviously, let's start at the upper part. If you, you know, if your legs are fine, you can walk. If you can walk out in a, in a wilderness medicine scenario, that is 100% the best option. Okay. And so it, let's just say that you have, you sustained an injury to your, you know, your shoulder, your arm, your wrist or something like that. What are your, how are you going to deal with that in the field? Say, let's say you have your med kit on you first and then say that you lost it in the second scenario. Okay. So, you know, assessing, are you bleeding? Right. And if you're bleeding, stop the bleeding however however you need to, whether that just be some direct pressure or the gauze and the coban that you have or a tourniquet if it's really bad. Mm-hmm. And then can you move like can you move it around? Mm-hmm. Um, and so really your goal would be stop the bleeding and then sling your arm mm-hmm. so that you could then walk out. Okay. That brings to mind another question. How do you tell when you need a tourniquet? You would need a tourniquet if when you're trying to stop the blood, it's just not working. Okay. Or you could tell that it's like an arterial bleed, which would be more like a squirting than just oozing. Gotcha. But it's really hard to tell how much blood you've lost, especially like out in the field because, you know, it gets absorbed, soaks in, and not that much blood can look like a lot of blood right? and and vice versa. And so it's hard to tell like, Oh, I've lost this much blood. I should do a tourniquet. Mm -hmm. It's really about how is it responding to your initial treatments? I understand. And, and also it's a time thing too. Like Mm -hmm. if you have multiple injuries or multiple people, Mm -hmm. you know, that takes 20 seconds to put on a tourniquet Gotcha. and you can just get that on and then deal with the rest Mm -hmm. and then come back to that later. Hmm. So it's useful also in like a triage scenario too. I gotcha. I gotcha. And not just triaging of multiple patients, like triaging of multiple injuries. Understood. And how long do you have once you've put a tourniquet on? Uh, the, the old adage of like four hours, but 
you know, you, you have you have a choice to make of do you leave it on and maybe lose the limb mm-hmm. because the tourniquet's been too on too long yeah. and the tissue past that has died, yeah. or do you bleed out? And so if it's you know one or the other, obviously you're going to choose to to live. And if if you get back to a like a, a tertiary center that has mm-hmm. surgery and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you can have a tourniquet on for a pretty prolonged period of time, and they can save it still. Oh, interesting. And like everything, as technology progresses, yeah. the outcomes improve. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so assess your injury, stop the bleeding. If you think you have a break or a really bad soft tissue injury, you're going to sling it and just try to get the heck out of there. Yeah. What if you have? What if the injury is to one of your legs? Same thing initially, right? Uh, check for bleeding, stop the bleeding, see if it's if you see any breaks. You know, you lift up half your leg and the other half doesn't come. You probably have a broken bone. <laughs> Right. Yes. Uh, and then, and then, can you put any weight on it? Okay. All right. Right. So, can I put some weight on it to where I kind of hobble out, mm-hmm. or I need a stick, or my buddy who's with me can then help me? Is mm-hmm. it both legs? Is it one leg? Because yeah. that changes too. Yeah. Right. Because if it's one leg, you can still walk out. Right. Um, you know, you get a stick or whatever, or. Your buddy does, you know, you put your arm over your buddy mm-hmm. and then you, you hobble out. Uh, and that's still usually way faster than getting any kind of rescue to you. So that's what you're saying is if you are any level of ambulatory, get yourself out because it is going to be much better, much more likely for you to get aid quickly by you going to them than them trying to find you. Yes. There was a story that we put in the Six Gunner not too long ago about a guy who actually was rifle hunting in California, and there was like an arroyo or whatever, and he fell down it and ended up breaking his wrist or his ankle. I, don't, I think it was his ankle because I remember he tried he was tried to use his rifle as a crutch, you know, and uh, use what it, you have exactly right, more of a cane <laughs> than a crutch. But nobody knew where he was, and he, uh, even though he was near a bike trail and he was trying to signal people by shooting, you know letting them, you know, like three shots in succession so they could stop and look. He had a very difficult time signaling somebody. So that's a good example of if you can get out, yeah. then. And it's not always get out, right? It'd be get to that trail. Uh, right, right. You know, get, yeah. get to where somebody can then help you. But uh, I guess something we should talk about too, if you do have a broken bone, mm-hmm. is about splinting. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're splinting, you want to put uh, support above and below the fracture point and so you use a stick whatever you have you know uh, a handgun yeah right uh, and then you you tie it Mm -hmm. to your arm or your leg at a point above and below where that fracture is so the the long the stick or whatever is parallel to your bone yeah do you use one thing or two things so uh you two things better okay um one thing also works is it, what, what it all all that it's really doing is stabilizing it uh-huh. so it doesn't move around while you're moving understood yeah yeah because you don't want that to shift it makes it harder to heal later it, right? it hurts more uh, okay it's more for for pain uh your your broken bone if it's shifting mm-hmm. uh once you get to uh, oh they'll reset yeah they'll yeah, reset okay. it and understood. so that that really doesn't matter but okay. but it 
it's very painful mm-hmm. when you're trying to hobble out and every mm-hmm. time you shift it's yeah. moving and rubbing and it, it hurts that's interesting that that you bring that up because you know a lot of times people would think oh it hurts but you're like well yeah duh it hurts you just got to grit through the pain and get the heck out of there so to what degree because you know in these situations as you are very familiar with this becomes sometimes even even if you're having severe injury this becomes more of a mental game than a physical game yeah so to, so how important is it to now obviously you're not going to be comfortable like staying at the hilton comfortable but how important is it to you know to take the time to prevent pain so that your 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 mental stamina as you're moving out increases very important uh you'll be far more successful if you take as much suck out of it as you can yeah you know, obviously people can do pretty extraordinary things under very bad circumstances, mm-hmm. but if you don't have to, why? Right. And so like things you can do to make yourself more comfortable, take some Tylenol, uh-huh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. something as simple as that. Right. But that really helps with pain control and then, uh, immobilizing a fracture. So it's not moving around while you move. Right. Just very, very helpful. That's, that's good to hear. That's good to hear you say, because you know, I kind of feel like sometimes it would have just been like, you know, well, you just got to grit, grit your teeth. I had some Tylenol, but I didn't take it, you know. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that you have fallen down, and but you don't feel like anything's broken. How do you assess yourself for a head injury, like a, a, a concussion or something like that? Yeah. So that's very, very difficult to do. Right. Because if you are, if you do have a concussion, you, you can't assess yourself mm-hmm. because you're you can't remember understood yeah um so you can't really do it that's why you know, it's super important to have a, a, a buddy, buddy there with right. you mm-hmm. um concussions though are they they really are inconvenient mm-hmm. and they hurt and you'll have a bad headache for a very long time mm-hmm. but it's not really life-threatening unless you don't have a partner and you are too altered to be able to recognize that you need help uh, and to be able to get help and so really the big things you, you're worried about is if you're hit your head so hard that you're bleeding inside of your head right um which unfortunately there's not much you could do out in the field yeah, for right. that mm-hmm. except just kind of watch your buddy to mm-hmm. see if they're getting worse and worse and worse gotcha so if you know that you hit your head would it be a good idea to just Assume you do have a concussion. Uh, I mean, not not necessarily. Okay. Um, right, the the worst concussions that that I have that come into the ER, mm-hmm. um, they will ask you the same question like 157 times, just over and over again, and they'll be about a minute. Like, what happened? You're in a car wreck. Oh, okay. What happened? Uh, you were in a car wreck. Oh, okay. Wow. And, and they, they forget and they, okay. they just can't like cognitively assess what, what's going on. Right. And so, you know, if you hit your head, you're like, oh, wow, that kind of hurt a little bit, but I'm okay. You know, I know where I am. I know the year. I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You probably don't have uh, at least a, a bad concussion. You, know, you can still have a mild concussion. So if you do have a buddy or you are the buddy... How do you check to make sure your buddy does or doesn't have a concussion? For the purposes of being there and just buddy aid, yeah. 
just recognizing like, hey, do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? Who am I? Um, like those kinds of questions and then seeing if they're asking the same questions again and again and again. Uh, because if they are, that's definitely bad enough that would warrant leaving. Gotcha. I've heard that you can do like check to see if their pupils are unequally dilated. Is that a symptom? That is not a symptom of concussion. Oh, that okay. is a late symptom of a head bleed. Oh. And they are doing very, very poor at that at that time. Okay, so it's way worse. Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> And what about if their eyes are sluggish to dilate? Uh, many different things can cause okay. that. And so that's not, that's not a great uh, tool, especially for like a, somebody who doesn't look at oh, right. pupils a all pro, the time. A, a pro. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, oh, that's kind of sluggish, I guess. Uh, oh, right. You know, like what's the definition of sluggish? Okay, so there's not, that's not a good... I'm glad I asked that question because I've always thought, you know, just shine a light in someone's eyes and if it's if it doesn't dilate or if it doesn't work right. But you're saying a better way to assess concussion specifically is just monitoring and asking yeah. questions that are so basic that they should yeah. definitely know the answer to. And then and then if they do have a pupil that is unequal, they yeah. are bad, you need to call for like help yeah. immediately. Because that, that what happens is they have so much blood where it's not supposed to be in the brain that it's... Mm -hmm pushing their brain down, uh, compressing the oculomotor nerve uh -huh. um, that is causing that to happen. Okay. And so you are like, it's so much that is pushing. Gotcha. Yeah, that is pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to uh, the thoracic region. I'm Dr. Two. <laughs> moving, moving on to the torso area and assessing internal injuries there. Um, I know you're, you mentioned you being a wilderness fellow and there's been some really cool, we've talked about advancements in uh, sonogram technology where you guys can have these little portable ones you go in the field, which enable you to tell whether or not someone has an internal bleed or something like that. That might mean that while they don't look the most injured, they're the most prim uh, priority case. So obviously we're not carrying yet. We're not all carrying little sonograms on our phones. I'm sure that there will be some day where we do, where we can just be like, you know, send you a video. But what are some ways for you to self-assess internal injuries uh, besides the head? There's not. Ah. So. Uh, unfortunately, especially without some more advanced equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, not even that advanced, but like a stethoscope uh -huh. or like the ultrasound device yeah. or knowledge. Mm. There's not much that you can do to assess. Okay. So then as far as that's concerned, because, you know, you've heard those stories about people who, you know, didn't know because they look okay, but they have some internal, usually it's a bleed, right? Mm -hmm. And when they bleed out inside because they weren't really, really aware of it until it was too late. What, uh, I mean, I know like your really late stage of that, you can feel a firmness in the belly. Isn't that true? Like if it's like really getting really hard. Yeah. Uh, but, but also that's until you're, you know, feeling a bunch of bellies uh, and then like, Oh, right. which one's okay. hard or not. Okay. Okay. So then what's your, what's, what's your best advice for someone? I mean, what kind of things are going to cause internal bleeding and what any, you look at? so any kind of blunt trauma mm -hmm. or penetrating trauma, obviously, course, but, yeah. uh, blunt trauma is a really big culprit because you could, uh, like cause lacerations on your spleen, your liver, mm -hmm. um, kidneys, 
and bleed internally. And it's really hard to, to pick that up without uh, a CT scan. Gotcha. So like you fall and then the proverbial log across the way that you your stomach lands on and yeah. you just kind of that kind of deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then same like hitting your chest so hard that you can bleed inside your chest too. Okay. Or rupture a lung and have air inside your chest. Right. So is there ever likely to be a time where you've sustained this kind of injury but you think you're okay? Or is it going to be so bad that you're... Potentially, you're yeah. Okay. It could be a slow bleed. Yeah. Um, and it just bleeds a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Uh-huh. But if it's bleeding slow enough, uh-huh. like... You know, hopefully it stops itself before anything happens. Gotcha. You know, not not all the bleeding of internal injuries requires surgery. Oh, I didn't know that. Does blood coagulate inside you? Because mm-hmm. it's a chemical process, right? I didn't know that. Well, what about exposure type injuries? Those are very common. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, wind burns, mm-hmm. sun, cold, uh, and if you're at high altitudes, like the UV burns on your eyes too and so just having proper equipment for that yeah whether it's sunscreen Mm -hmm. proper sunglasses like you you know you see the videos of the people at high altitudes they have those big like yeah dark sunglasses it's specifically because if you don't have that you will burn your your eyes makes sense though yeah because you don't have the filtering as much filtering in the atmosphere yeah most of those are inconvenient Mm mm-hmm like windburn or sunburn, it's yeah. inconvenient. It's irritation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you get really sunburned, it can lead to dehydration, right, yeah. further problems down the road. Yeah. But the big one that you want to worry about is cold exposure, frostbite. Right. Because that is, that's yeah. very bad. Lose, lose uh, limbs, fingers, right. toes, noses. Sure. And is there a, let's talk about when you're at cold exposure, is there what are the symptoms like because obviously cold will slow all your processes down so you just become lethargic right and that's then... that's more like hypothermia okay um which which of course is right. is uh is a cold exposure uh-huh. but yeah you 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 know you go through a process where you become cold then you start shivering and then you stop shivering and if you stop shivering that's bad news yeah, yeah. that that is when you are very cold at that point okay so if somebody, let's say, you know, fell in an icy river or something mm-hmm. like that, is is the old, like, I think most people would know, I would hope, I don't know, I don't know if most people know anymore, uh, get your wet clothes off, f- build a fire, is that, you know, or yeah. cuddle with your buddy warm, or whatever? Get yeah. warm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, get, get the wet clothes off because that's not going to help. Uh-huh. Um, and then get warm. What about, uh, like, heat stroke? type so that's kind of like for me i think of it if you stop shivering right or not that you stopped if you've gone past shivering then you're super cold and it's very dangerous yeah and the opposite end i think like if you've stopped sweating or if you've gone also past sweating yeah very dangerous yeah. and what are I, I don't know what are the symptoms of what are the heat exhaustion and then heat stroke yeah okay so what are the symptoms of how does that progress so it's basically where your body can no longer regulate it its own heat Mm -hmm. so you stop sweating um and a lot of times you have some pretty bad electrolyte imbalances with it um like low salt because you've sweat all of it out right and and so that kind of confounds the the picture of what's going on but you just become like 
very confused, very altered, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So again, all of these things we've talked about, it sounds to me like your chances of survival or even just better outcomes increase exponentially by having a partner with you. 100%. Yeah. Uh, Talking about hypothermia, there was this uh, really interesting case. It was in a European country, uh, maybe Norway, mm-hmm. but uh, there was an orthopedic surgeon and she was out with uh, a bunch of partners and they were uh, doing Nordic skiing mm-hmm. and she fell into a river and actually, you know, I'm not, I don't remember all the details, mm-hmm. but got her head stuck under the water and so oh. also drowned. Oh, wow. Yeah. But was hypothermic, got incredibly cold mm-hmm. and she was you know, essentially dead for like six hours. Wow. But had full neurological recovery and is still a practicing physician now. Is that because of the low temperature? It's because of the low temperature. That's, yeah. that's like Mr. Burns cryo-freezing his head. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's wild. Yeah. Man. So like she went under the ice or something like that? Sounds yeah. Like, yeah. Jeez. Okay. So what are some tips? Obviously, you uh, have been in many situations in your life that required extreme mental toughness. What are some tips you have? Because, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's not the norm. I think that men, especially, but all modern Americans on on the whole are probably less tough mentally than we were uh, 100 years ago. And whatever that means. What are some tips that you would give to people for mental preparedness before they go on adventures like this? I think the biggest tip is, you know, you always prepare for the worst. Uh, and so if you're preparing for the worst, you know, it's that, that old saying like plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yeah. Right. And so anything that gets thrown at you is not really that big of a deal. It's just kind of like, Oh, well, Mm. you know, yeah, this, this stinks. It happened, but we were planning for this. So we're good. Let's, let's enact the plan. Uh, and then I think once something does go wrong, setting small goals, Mm. And so it's not the, well, I just need to make it seven miles back to base camp mm-hmm. or to my my vehicle to be able to get out. Mm-hmm. It's, okay, I need to make it to this ridge line. I need to make it to this trail. And you, you kind of break it up into these goals. And so it's it's achievable goals. And you're actually finding success along the way instead of just not having success until the very end. And that that's very helpful for like a positive mental Hmm. outcome and outlook. And when it starts to become really hard, you can say, well, I just made these last three. Mm -hmm. I can do this. And you keep going. It's kind of good advice in general (laughs) about (laughs) life. (laughs) Whether whether or not you're trying to just get through your work day or or you're trying to walk out on a broken leg. Yeah, small small goals are are huge for Uh for everything because, you know, you, you actually find success. Did it, in the toughest mental situations that you've been in in your life, is that was that the method you used to get through them? Would you say often? Yeah. Yeah. If I can just get to this point, yeah, and then I'll assess from there and get to the next point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I just got to make it to this. Yeah. And yeah. then you're done. Like, okay, now I just got to make it to this. Gotcha. That's fantastic advice. Okay. Lastly, I wanted to touch on this a little bit because I know you're really good at it, and this is one of your sticking points with uh, other people who are in this wilderness medicine space and rescue and going out. And that is, 
uh, map reading and knowing where you are and all that stuff. Yeah. Basically, when you talk about that, because these days we have lots of apps, you know, Onyx, that kind of thing, that are very handy. But still, if you look at them, yeah, they're digital. But if you know how to read a map, I would think that you're much better, like, even with those things. So what, when you mean... When you say map reading is what you're talking about, is that what you said? What does that mean? Well, I said orienteering. Orienteering. Yeah. Thank, that was the word I was looking for. Yeah. So when you are, what does orienteering mean? What are the skills, specific skills for that? Orienteering is map and compass. Okay. And so it's having a map, finding where you are on the map using uh-huh. your compass and land features, uh-huh. and then finding where you need to go from that point using your compass and your pace count. To, to count your distance mm-hmm. and also use landmarks along the way mm-hmm. to find out to get to that point. Okay. This is a topographical map. Yes. That, you know, you typically see like yeah. the military guys gathered around in the movies yeah. looking at. But, and, yeah. and I think a essential piece of gear is always a map and a compass. Oh, um, a physical paper map. Physical paper map okay. and compass. Because let's say you have your phone and you're using your, yeah. you know, your... Uh, uh, CalTopo map on your phone okay. or, or a guy a GPS map on your phone uh-huh. and you fall and you break your leg but you also broke your phone because right. your phone was right there in your yeah. pocket uh-huh. now you, you have nothing yeah. and you can't even use the compass on, on your phone anymore uh, yeah. but if you have a physical compass mm-hmm. you can know where where to go uh, for, for people that get lost that are lost without any equipment and, mm-hmm. and compasses they you know they've studied like what they do and they find like the point of where they get lost and then they're like oh well, i'm gonna go this way and they end up walking big circles mm-hmm. because as as good as you think your internal compass is it's, mm-hmm. it's not right and so especially when you're walking around land features you know if you're on the side of a hill you're always going to walk down a little bit mm-hmm. so you're not going to walk straight um, the sun moves, right. so, yeah. or I guess the sun doesn't move. The earth is moving. Right. And depending but, on where you are and what hemisphere is yeah. going to trace a straight line across the sky and all yeah. that. Yeah. So it's, it, it's difficult, but if you have a compass and like, I just need to go North right. and you can continually just go North, right. you're far better off. Is it, where do people learn how to do that? Uh, I mean, I, not military people. I know that REI has courses that you can oh, okay. sign up for. Okay. Or you could go to my course at www. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to make a course. We should we definitely do need to make a course. Okay. So one question I have about that is because everybody, when they're talking about backpacking and stuff like that, you know, the old adage that uh, ounces are pounds type mm-hmm. of deal. And I hear you saying that a, a paper map is and a compass are important enough to add to those pounds. How much, just because I don't, I've never done it, how much space fits on a map? You know, like your typical map that you're talking about, taking with you, how big of space does that cover? It depends. I mean, it depends sure, on the scale yeah. of the map. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But the one you would want to take. What are your... So I, I use CalTopo uh, and I can make the map for the area that I'm looking at. Oh, okay. And so I can make it on a sheet of paper. Gotcha. And. If I'm covering a big area, you obviously need more of a map. Okay. But how much detail do you need? Because if you need less detail, you can cover more space on it. Right. But if you need more detail because you're trying to find specific areas, okay. then you're not going to have as much space on it. So then this is just now me being curious. So let's just say you're going 
you know, in Colorado or wherever you're going hunting and, you know, everybody's got honey holes up there and they're just like, you need to go to, I mean, if, if a buddy is going to tell you where a good place is, it's like, you need to find the place. There's a bowl with a tank and four giant trees, you know, next to it. One of them. An X shape. Yeah. And like a pirate bar, uh, <laughs> like a wet bar. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and you want to find that right on X or whatever, those maps, that you can zoom in, you know, GPS, satellite stuff. Yeah. That might be the way to find that, but then maybe carry a map with less detail but covers more space in case you need to move further. Yeah. Okay. And and like I said, uh, as long as your phone is still working, yeah. like those are really fantastic. Those are really good sure. and really useful. And, and now you can even download them so you don't have to have connection. Yeah. Uh, very, very useful. But... You know, what happens when you're got weathered in and you're out for two days and now your battery's out or right. you do fall and you break it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then also that's where GPS comes into play as well because GPS are usually more rugged than your phone is. Right. And you would typically have it in a separate area than, than your phone. Than your phone. And you wouldn't have it on the whole time. Right. Like kind of pull out for emergency I gotcha. I gotcha. type things. But 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 then also you know stuff can happen sure, to right. any equipment yeah. uh, you know stuff can happen to a compass too right. you know but if your phone your gps and your compass breaks you're just <laughs> you were meant to die sorry <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah everything's going against yeah. you anyway okay so finishing up what what pieces of advice in general we've gone over to review we've gone over the kit that you should bring with you and your top things are tourniquet compass map and in your med kit, you need to make sure you have a bandage, uh, gauze. You need to, you know, maybe a pain, maybe some pain pills, yeah. um, stuff like that. Band-aids, Band-Aids clean, right. like simple scrapes mm-hmm. and stuff that mm-hmm. are just inconvenient, gotcha. but are, but are nice when you have something mm-hmm. for it. You need to have the knowledge and equipment to be able to construct a shelter in whatever area you're going into. You need to have a way to obtain it and then clean water. Because you're far more likely, you can't go as long without water as you can without food. Yes. Um, and then you, if you do get hurt, you know, stay calm, take the time to assess yourself. Hopefully, you're with somebody who can help you. And hopefully, you have the GPS where you can send an SOS if yeah, you need to. Yeah, the GP, right. Yeah, yeah, the GPS where you can send an SOS. And then if you are in a tricky situation, I mean, even any situation, you know, mentally, just just try to do the next right thing. Make it to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. Yeah. On top of that, is there any advice that you would give anyone going into the woods? Uh, I just want to quickly cover like what to do if you are lost and you have nothing. Oh, great! Yeah. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. you you uh, like went out on a day hike, mm-hmm. uh, Shenandoah Valley, and you got lost, and okay. you don't have a compass. You don't know where you are. You don't really have any equipment. The, the best thing to do is hopefully you've told somebody where you're going right, yeah. and they are expecting you back because, you know, that that's when the bad things happen is when mm-hmm. no one knows where you mm-hmm. are, where you went and, or when you're supposed to be back. And so then it's like seven days later and yeah. they're like, hey, I haven't heard from so and so in a while. And then it takes forever. Right? right. But if you're you you told somebody you're out on this hike uh, and you get lost just stay where you are. Just stay put. Oh. Because in, unless you're 100% sure that you can 
find where you need to go. Mm-hmm. But we, we talked about that, right? If you don't have a compass, a lot of people walk circles. Right. And it's very hard for search and rescue to find a moving target yeah. versus standstill tar- yeah, gotcha. stationary target. Yeah. And then you can also, if you're in one place, you can start doing things to prepare for a little bit of a lengthier stay. Uh, like shelter. building a shelter, yeah, yeah. finding water, building a fire so you could signal. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, all those things. That's that is good, and that's probably counterintuitive to most people. It is, yeah, because you know. they do you think like, oh, I need to go here. I yeah. I could always walk a straight line, right? Nope. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. I mean, just hunting out where we hunt, I yeah, can, it's know, easy like, to get turned around. There's right? no way that I could walk a straight line. Yeah, even when we try, you know? and, and and you know, like you mentioned, we know where we are, yeah. and it's still yeah. you got to like wait a second and yeah. kind of exactly. regain your bearings exactly. That's 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 an excellent point. And then you brought up another one that we didn't talk about, which is never go into the woods without telling somebody. Yes, because that that's is the foolish. primary thing, yeah, right? Man, and yeah, because I can imagine, you know, like a story about a family goes on a hike, and then they turn around, they can't find one of their kids, so the dad goes off, mm-hmm. and like maybe he's down this way. The dad gets totally lost. Fortunately, somebody, you know, the, the kid makes his way back because he was just goofing yeah, off. Yeah, and then the dad and the dies. Dad's like, where? Yeah. yeah, he gets lost, but yeah. Okay, so any any last tips for anybody going into the woods? Enjoy yourself. That's a great one. Thanks for doing this with me, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You're great. Thank you. Another good one in the record books. Now, that was very interesting to me, even though he and I are very close and I know I get to speak with him a lot. It was interesting to hear some of his perspective on those things and some of the things that you don't think about. One of the things that really impacted me was the fact that if you get lost in the woods to stay still, you know, as... uh, confident outdoorsmen, a lot of times our tendency would be to think, I can do that. I can walk in a direct line east. I can find my way back when the truth is that statistically you are way more likely to be rescued if you just keep put. That was a brutal reminder to me about my own capabilities in the woods. And next time you're in the woods, try and see if you can walk a straight line. Bring a compass and walk a straight line and see if you're facing the way you think you are. You'll you'll be pretty surprised. Anyway, I do need to say that none of this podcast constitutes medical advice from either Handgun Hunters International, myself, or Dr. Jones. So if you need medical advice on any of these topics, please consult your medical practitioner. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Shortgun Sportsman. Give us five stars, and we'll see you on the next one. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting.